You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. Hey everyone, it's David Bombal coming to you from the beautiful island of Lanzarote. Once again, talking with Hank Preston, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. But Hank, before we introduce the topic, welcome. Thank you so much, David. It's always it's always a highlight of my week, as I've mentioned before, and I'm looking forward to this one as well. It's as as with most of our topics, we we throw out an idea, and it's amazing how quickly that can kind of grow into these bigger things and deeper discussions. And so, looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, it's when we were talking about what to discuss this week, we're talking about like different types of tools or different types of I don't I don't know what you can call it configuration tools other tools that are available for network engineers specifically when it comes to network automation. I mean last week you showed me Genie which is fantastic. But I think you mentioned that as and I forgive me if I get all the terms wrong it's more like a verification tool that's what we were using it for. But Hank let me pass the ball to you can you tell us the general community about the types of tools that are available for us, because in the past we had none, and now we seem to have so many. Um, and then, you know, kind of your recommendations. And that's kind of like, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent there, but, you know, hopefully you understand what I'm kind of driving at. Yeah, no, I do. And, and it's honestly a conversation I have quite often with folks inside of Cisco and, and with customers that are there. Just yesterday, I was on a... Um, an internal call with some SEs trying to answer some of these same questions is what tools should they be learning about and what tools are interesting for Cisco customers as it goes through. And and because I've had that type of conversation so many times for a while, um, I've kind of assembled this kind of mental model that I use to talk about network automation tooling, or, or I always like to call it the net DevOps uh, tool chest as it goes through. And because when you get started with network automation, we focus in on the things that kind of are easy entry points. And so, hey, I want to push some configuration out to a device. What's the easiest way for me to use Python or some tool to, to add VLANs or configure interfaces? And then you move from there into, well, I want to gather some details. And so again, it's I'm interfacing with devices and trying to pull some pieces in. But as, as the journey goes on, the set of tools, the types of tools, um, kind of the, the way you assemble and bring things together so that you can maintain your scripts and share them with others and, and then security questions come through, is that there's these categories of tools that go in. And that's, that's what the tool chest started out as, is kind of giving me a way to describe and place different tools into what their functionality is. And so this, I've got, I've got, it, I'm sharing it here, and this is kind of the starting point. And I came up with the idea originally one weekend when I was working out in the garage on some project, and I looked at my toolbox that was there, and I had my screwdriver drawer and my wrench and hammers and pliers, and I'm like, that same type of thing might work for this model, which is where it came from. And so I've, I've laid it out, and I, my belief is, and I've, it's, it's held up as I've talked to folks, is that over time. Um, every network automation engineer or every networking organization in, in a company is eventually going to have to select 
and, and outfit their own tool chest across these drawers. Now, we probably will start someplace like the network service and config management drawer. Um, and then we might grow into network verification, um, simulation tools pop up. But over time, like every drawer will be picked off. And so what I've, I've done is through my discussions, I've, I've tried to highlight and, and dive into the drawers. And so for example, um, and I start at the top here, it's source control systems. And we've talked a lot about Git. Um, we spent two, two full weeks go, going through it and we've got episodes out there where people can kind of dive in and see how tools like Git and GitHub and GitLab can add value to network engineers as we go through automation. And so there's the source control drawer and that's where these tools go in. And then as um, organizations try to move kind of into that really DevOpsy fashion of CICD and, and automating the, the push out of the configuration updates, uh, the continuous integration drawer gets pulled out and we've got things like the traditional DevOps tools like Jenkins, um, GitLab, Drone. And so we got to figure out how can we fit these in. Um, and each one of these drawers at the back kind of have a quick little definition I came up with um, for what the tool offers the, the engineers we go through. And so each drawer as we go in, and I'm going to jump down to the one that we often will, we spend a lot of time on, which is this network service and config management drawer. And this is where things like Ansible fit into. This is where um, libraries like Napalm fit into or just basic python and using netmiko to interface with with your interfaces that are out there this is the drawer where those tools go into but as we can see it's it's just one part of the overall kind of tooling framework we need um, we've always had tooling frameworks most engineers are probably familiar with network management systems like SolarWinds or um, cisco prime infrastructure or previous uh, generations of like lms um, those are kind of our previous generation of network service and, and operations management tools. And so looking ahead into automation, it's these this new selection. And as you mentioned at the start, we've talked about so many of the tools even just spread across the tool chest. Um, I, I think it'll be good to spend today talking a bit about kind of what tool, where the, the, the value of particular tools are, how to pick what tool makes the most sense for a particular use case or project as it goes in. Yeah, looking at that, I mean, there's, it looks like there's so many tools and so many areas that you've got listed there. I mean, some of them I'm not even sure I understand fully, like artifact repository or continuous integration. I think for most network engineers, that isn't necessarily obvious what that actually is. So, Hank, I think I'm going to force you, if I, if I can, twist your arm to like go through a lot of these in the coming weeks because I don't think we're going to have time to go through all of them. But perhaps, you, you know, I'll take your your you know guidance on this i think configuration management you've got network service and configuration management tools might be a good place to start because that's where most people i think are starting out and concentrating at the moment what do you think no i think it's it's a great place to focus in on and it's an entry point and it, i would say it's the entry point that most engineers i talk to get into kind of this world of automation is is through configuration management um and so yeah, so let's let's dive deeper into it and go through and, and kind of talk about some of the tools that are out there and, and which ones, and, and I'll be open and honest, and I've mentioned this to you before, David, I haven't tried every tool that's there. Um, I've tried the ones that kind of have crossed my path because of uh, one reason or another, um, and I've kind of settled in on tools that meet my needs in the current demands today, and I, I keep my ears open for what other folks are using at a particular point in time. Um, and that's the first bit of advice I'll, I'll give most folks is, is keep an open mind, 
but also know that if you spend your entire time just testing every single tool or trying every new one that comes out, um, you eventually don't make progress because you're spending all your time kind of at step zero. You can't achieve any level of kind of, um, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word mastery because we don't have to wait for mastery to make, make success, but even just proficiency, that's a better word. You'll, you'll never achieve any level of proficiency if you're always going in and saying, okay, well, this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check out Salt, and then next week I'm going to dive into Nornir, and then the week after that we're going to go check out this other tool. Um, I like to find a tool, and if it works for me for a particular use case, I kind of stick with it until there's a compelling reason to dive to some other tool. No, I agree. I mean, you can, at some point, you've got to decide what you're going to do. I mean, taking it back to, well, I don't know if the analogy holds true, but like writing protocols, some people prefer OSPF, some prefer ISIS, some prefer EIGRP. Some guys, well, I'm just kidding. Some people may prefer RIP, but... Um, Let's take, let's take EIGRP, OSPF, ISIS. You know, people get into arguments about which one is better than the other. They go get into these flaming wars and all that kind of nonsense. I think at the end of the day, you just got to decide what's right for you and then use, use that tool, if you like, as best as you can. And I like this analogy that you've used here as a, of a tool chest because I've often said in the past, you know, we as network engineers have tools. So we have, you know, when it comes to writing protocols, we have various routing pro protocols in our tools chest, if you like, as an analogy. Um, and you, then you need to select the right one for what you want to implement. So I, 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 like, I really like what you've done here because it's kind of the same idea rather than just this unknown where we've got to really code everything from scratch perhaps. It sounds like there are a bunch of tools and frameworks that have been written that can make our lives easier. Yeah, I mean, we network automation is is very much becoming a mature area with that has mature tools and things that we can use, and so we don't have to start from scratch. And um, I've I've been in so many discussions back to the routing protocol piece where people say, well, which which one's the best? Which one should yeah. I use? And my first question is, well, which one do you know how to use? Because that yeah, a has one. a lot of weight, right? If you know how to use OSPF. Um, and it meets your needs, then use that one, right? Because the the tool, the routing protocol you're going to be the best at configuring and operating is the one you're comfortable with. So, yeah, I mean that's a really good point. I mean, some guys might say ISIS is the best, but I don't know of that many people who are very proficient, or to use the other term that you used, expert ISIS, you know, configurators and managers. Um, it may be better in a lot of cases just to stick with EIGRP, even though perhaps it's not the best in all cases, but for a lot of people it is good enough. So I really like what you said there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I would say that the, the recommendation I give to most people as to where to start is start with what you're comfortable with. And network engineers, by nature of our, our, our job and who we are, we're comfortable with the CLI because that's how we, we learn. That's how we learn to configure routing protocols and set up interfaces. And so um, the NetMiko Python library is an excellent um, tool for working and getting started with CLI interactions. And there's a lot of really good examples out there for making configuration templates and using NetMiko for it. Um, and so that's long been my go-to suggestion of, hey, if you're first getting started and you're, you're doing a little dabbling with Python, um, an easy way to move 
into CLI-based configuration through programmability is using a library like NetMiko to push them out as a CLI piece. And I think that you've done quite a bit of, of content and, and experimentation with that. Would you agree that that's a decent place to start? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I my in my Python courses, I start with Telnet just because it's it's even easier in in some ways. In some ways, it's not. But I agree with you. Most people don't don't like Telnet. They want to jump straight to SSH. And in my experience, I found NetMiko to be a great place to start. And Hank, I don't want to put work on you, but if you can, do you mind just like opening up a Word document or something, and then let's write down the lists of tools that we that we've discussed, so that we have kind of a list. So yeah, I think NetMiko is great. Um, great way to start. All right. Step one. CLI-based interactions, and we'll say uh, NetMiko. And there's a few tools that I think we can talk a bit about in the CLI-based interactions. So, so NetMiko is a great way to get started in there. And then as we talked in, in our last video, we looked at how Genie can actually make, um, in some ways, easier CLI interactions as it goes through um, on it, it goes in. So I think as in that CLI-based place, particularly for operational pieces. And so if you're, if your automation goals are configuration-based, um, I think configuration-based use cases, uh, NetMiko is probably really easy to get started in that space and you can go through. For um, operational-based use cases, I think the Genie CLI that we talked about last week is actually um, even easier um, than NetMiko to go through because it takes away a lot of the, the string processing that you may have to do with NetMiko to go through. And I'm actually interested in your thought on that because you've you've experimented and done work with NetMiko and I imagine some of these cases as well. And we talked about the Genie piece um, yesterday. For those operations, I want to gather interface statistics or I want to get uh, check counters that are out there or, or routing table pieces. Um, what's been your experience with using NetMiko and, and the different types of options and, and mechanisms for processing that data um, to make it usable and actually formatted in a way versus what we talked about last week with, with the genie that's there and kind of giving a suggestion and a place to start? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give you my thoughts now, but it's going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see what other people think. So I, was, I just wanted mm -hmm. to open it up. If any of you have thoughts, then put it below the video, because as Hank and I said, I don't think there's one right way to do this. Oh, it's absolutely. different opinions, different experiences. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad you, you asked me that, because in my experience with NetMiko, it's a great place or great way to learn some of the basics. You know, we in my course, I show you just basic CLI configuration stuff. So like configure a VLAN. And I think NetMiko is great for that, but it gets complicated when you want to do like multi-processing or, you know, if someone's not a programmer or have run away from programming into networking and never want to be programmers, you know, we've discussed that yeah. before, then actually maybe Genie and maybe some of these other frameworks, and I don't know if, you want to, if, if you've got any other recommended frameworks, may be a better place to start, especially when you, you know, deploy. So I think NetMiko is great for studying, but for real world deployments, and let's come back to that other big argument, Ansible may be a mm -hmm. better place to start. So what are your thoughts, Hank? Because now it's a can mm -hmm. of worms. Yeah, so we can go through on that. So I, I think that as we go through the, the entry point, um, I'm going to put Ansible over here and we'll figure out how to categorize it as we go through in, in our discussion. Um, Ansible for nearly, 
For nearly every network interaction that I'm aware of, there are a few that are moving away from it. Ansible is under the hood using CLI-based interaction for it. And so when you configure an interface on an iOS router or an NXOS device, or I imagine third-party devices as well, but that's where I've done most of my work, um, what Ansible does is it crafts the CLI, um, the CLI commands necessary to make that configuration. And then under the hood, it's actually using Python code and I don't know if under the hood it's they are, I imagine some of them use NetMiko, but most of them are, may just be going to the base Paramiko, which is kind of what NetMiko is built on that actually does the SSH and the Telnet connections to devices. Um, so Ansible is using those under the hood, but what you get with Ansible is it's a it's an abstraction layer that goes on top. And Ansible is actually really quite easy to get started with um, as it goes in, um, and you can do some really sophisticated bits with it. But Ansible also brings in other things you have to be comfortable with. You have to figure out how to um, work within a YAML file. And YAML's not hard, but it does have some, some interesting um, things that pop up when you're working with YAML. You also now are moving out of the land of, of seeing the CLI that you want to send, um, entering that, and then crafting some tool or using some tool like a NetMiko or a Genie command um, to send the CLI directly. And with Ansible, most of the, the times what you're doing is you're, you're providing values for specific keys and then Ansible's crafting the CLI. So you're, it's like a step away from the CLI interaction. So I think it's a, good, it's a good place to move into fairly quickly, but I don't know if I would say that it's a good like first step. And so I'm, I'm gonna put it as like a step two type of a thing. And we'll call these, um, uh, uh, we'll call them um, network frameworks. And we may change the title as we kind of talk, Network Automation Frameworks um, Abstractions, right? So it's it's a step away from like the actual hard touch and and different people have different ways of learning, but I always, I start out with fundamentals. Show me the basics, right? Um, if I'm gonna learn how to add, I'm gonna learn how to add very, very basic pieces using rudimentary tools before I start to move my way up to calculators and macros and Excel spreadsheets and the rest of it. And that's just the kind of the way that I tackle it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I like the way you've said that. I mean, my personal preference is Python. Um, I think if you want to go further, it's better to learn some Python. Um, if you're very scared of programming, Ansible for some people may be a better start. It, it's nice to get your opinion on this. And just so everyone's aware, these, these are just opinions. And again, it might not be the right thing for you. You must make a decision. But hopefully this gives you some things to think about. I mean, it's it's interesting that you that you put it that way, Hank, because um, like Nonia is another framework that I mean, Dimitri did a great um, explanation when I spoke to him at Cisco Live, um, but that's a Python-based framework. Whereas Ansible seems to, as you said, it, you have to learn some other stuff. Whereas um, with Nonia, you can just import it into Python, and Genie seems it can do the same thing. So. What are your thoughts on you know Nonia versus Genie versus Ansible? Or am I going too fast? Did you want to talk about something else first? Oh no no, they're good questions, and I think it, it just shows how quickly these yeah. the, the the snowball unravels as it goes in. So um, I, I as you were going through, I added here to our notes, um, and I, I firmly agree. I think that if you and I think every network engineer needs to have some level of seriousness related to automation because frankly, that's I, I think that's where our industry is going. It's gonna be yeah. very few positions and jobs where the the network engineering 
day job of, of five, six years ago where you sit at the CLI and, and you simply SSH in devices and you leverage um, kind of commercial network management tools. I, I think that's going away, but it's still there for a bit. But I think every network engineer, every infrastructure engineer, because this is hitting systems and security and, and compute and storage as well, but there's going to be a level of automation necessary. And so from a foundation is, is yeah, go learn some Python. Don't, you don't have to spend two years becoming a, a software developer and, and an expert in Python. Um, take a course, one of your courses, David, or, or dive in and do some independent study or go pick up one of the books that are out there. Is, is spend a little bit of time and become somewhat comfortable with the fundamentals of Python. And then you can move in, and I and I do really like the idea of Python plus NetMiko as a good entry point to go through. Um, Ansible, as you mentioned, it, it's it, we don't think of it, or if you're operating and using Ansible, you don't think about the fact that it's Python under the hood, but it is, because what you're actually working with is, is something that's called a domain. Oops, I can't spell today. Domain specific specific language. Um, also kind of just called a DSL. And so a domain-specific language is the syntax that a tool like Ansible uses. And so Ansible's domain-specific language is based on YAML. And with that YAML, you identify the playbooks and you provide variables and you use keywords like with items and things to do it. So, and it's funny, if you, if you talk to the Ansible team or you go through one of their, their pieces, they're really hesitant to call Ansible um, a programming tool. And they've got some really interesting um, words they use because Ansible is often seen as, I don't want to automate, I don't want to program, I'll just use Ansible because I don't have to. And then there's all the discussions of uh, that are out there is, is turning a playbook into a programming language and doing really interesting kind of, or trying to do pr interesting processing and, and if logic using Ansible YAML playbooks or Jinja templates, um, which we'll have to talk about in a second as well, kind of how those fit in. And so Ansible can be very simple for very easy use cases, but Ansible also can very quickly become complicated as you try to do more real-world use cases. And so the idea that you can do Ansible and not be a programmer, um, I think that's that doesn't last long because very quickly, if you want to do anything um, sophisticated or real-world, someplace these programming concepts like conditions and loops and um, storing data and processing it later, you're going to run into that whether you're doing it with Ansible or one of these other more pure tools that are out there. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I, mean, I must admit, I'm a bit biased. I much prefer my personal choice. Again, this mm -hmm. is me personally. I much prefer Python over Ansible. And I'll give you an example of why. I created a course on Ansible. I published it. And almost immediately after it got published, they changed the version of Ansible and everything broke. And it was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, that's, I think, the, the problem perhaps with open source tools uh, and these abstraction frameworks, for lack of a better word. Um, I was livid because I did all this work and then mm -hmm. like almost overnight, it became a disaster. Um, Guys were complaining because the scripts wouldn't work and all the rest of it. I mean, in Python, at least we've only got 2.7 and 3. And with frameworks like Napalm, um, I found that the, the differences are very, very minor because that's another abstraction. But I mean, I'm just throwing things here, Hank, but that's my opinion. I personally prefer Python, but that's because I did a lot of programming many, many years ago, perhaps. 
Um, but I like what you said. If you want to do complex stuff, you're going to end up programming even with Ansible at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in your point on the, the updates to Ansible, Ansible is a very fast-moving open-source project, and you're not the only one that's felt the pain of the, the Ansible versions changed. I wrote Learning Labs for DevNet um, a, a while back on Ansible, and and what we've had to do on those is be very specific and say, these labs are written using this version of Ansible, and so when you take these labs or run these source code, we, we, we go in and say, make sure you install this version of Ansible, which it may be several versions old, um, because we, you know how much pain it goes into, how much work goes into yeah. updating labs. And so that has been a challenge that goes in and, and people go through on it. Um, and I think you'll, you'll, your, your point's actually really interesting. So, and we haven't even really dove into kind of where, um, we'll, we'll put them in here now, I'll just list them out. So Napalm, and then I'm gonna list out Nornir. Cause I put those kind of in these buckets of, um, of Python, of, of uh, automation frameworks, but kind of at a different level than what NetMiko is, because they wrap um, they wrap a lot of the workflows in these abstraction layers and different methods and and ways of working with it. And so it's not it's not the level of, of wrapping an abstraction that you get with Ansible, where they even give you their own uh, an executable tool, Ansible playbook to run it, because you are still working in Python but they are full-on libraries with, with things that are there. So I, I actually say that the, the Napalm and Nornir stuff from a, a, a functionality or what they are is they're really quite, they're closer to Ansible than they are to NetMiko because of the, the way that they work in, in different pieces. And, and I'm also gonna couch a lot of that in is I, I'm not super proficient in either Napalm or Nornir. This is just from discussions I've had and pieces that are there. Um, However, the, the versioning bits seem to be handled much more stably in Napalm and Nornir. Um, part of that might be because Napalm has is, is been out, um, is a very mature tool, it's been out for a long time. And actually a lot of the development from Nornir is, is being done by some of the same folks that did Napalm. So there's a lot of synergy that goes between those two tools as well. Um, and I think it's, that, those are good options to jump to. If you're kind of evolving, if you've done Python and NetMiko, Let's say you started here, and then you you got kind of bit by the Ansible bug, and you experimented with Ansible a little bit. I think moving back and kind of coming back into Python and using the libraries like Napalm and Nornir are good options as well um, from that configuration type of a use case. And I'm going to label these. I'm actually going to label all of these because I think it's it's important to keep in mind kind of the types of use cases these make the most sense for. So configuration uh, use cases. And I say all all of these, um, their sweet spot is actually in configuration use cases, um, rather than operational or verification types of use cases as they go in um, on those. Have yeah, you had, yeah. what, what have you, yeah, I was gonna ask your opinion on these too. So what are your thoughts on Napalm and Nornir? Have you had a chance to kind of um, use them yourself at all as, as kind of capabilities? What was the, what was your thought? I really like Napalm but that mm -hmm. was before I knew about Nornia. And I mean, like you said, the guys who created Napalm and NetMiko uh, have created Nornia. Yeah. So it's like, it seems to me that it's an iteration of the best of both of those. And if, if the authors are, are watching this or someone knows more than, you know, correct me, but that's kind of the way I see it. It's, it's an iteration or an improvement on NetMiko and Napalm. I mean, they're both great. Napalm makes it, is a lot easier, I found, than 
than NetMiko. It's, it's again, like you said, it's an abstraction, but Nornia seems to be even better than that. I mean, the problem with Napalm I found and NetMiko is again, they're great in a lab, but if you want to scale, um, like on my NetMiko course, the first thing guys complain about when they go from a Telnet script to a NetMiko script is how slow it is. It's really, really slow. And if you want to connect via SSH to two devices, that's fine. But what about 100 devices or 500 devices? Then it's extremely slow. And Dimitri was telling me that Nornia is so quick. And I think that's the advantage. With NetMiko, in my course, I show people how to you know, create processes to connect to multiple devices at the same time. But that gets like difficult. So, you know, You have to do proper coding. Whereas with Nornia, and I mean the same with Ansible, that kind of stuff is done for you. So for real world deployments, I think in those cases, Ansible, Nornia is better. But I'm, I must preface and say I haven't used Nornia in like a large scale environment. But from what I've heard and what Dimitri's told me, um, it's great at that. Yeah, and I think that that's, a, that's actually a really good point to keep in mind as well, is that real world use cases um, demand scale, um, performance, performance, um, and we'll say things like transactions, yeah, error recovery, and yeah. and when you're first getting started in network automation, those things don't matter as much. And so, using the basic functional tools, where you're kind of we'll, we'll call them low-level tools like NetMiko, where you're you're really establishing a connection to a device and sending sending a link off or sending a command off as it goes through. Um, you're not as concerned about scale and performance, but in real world, those come in. And so when you leverage any, any of these tools that we've put in the framework, one of the things that the developers of those tools do is they focus in on using optimizations available in the underlying language. And, and all of these tools we've talked about so far, the underlying language is Python. And so as you mentioned, um, you can do coding to speed up and make NetMiko more efficient and threading and like that, but you have to code it. If you yeah. use one of these other framework tools, somebody coded it, but it was somebody that is is quite likely a, a um, more proficient programmer than you are. And so you're kind of leveraging the power of the community that's out there to use it. And I think that's the one of the benefits you get when you start to move into these frameworks is that you get to you get to leverage the knowledge of, of other experts so that you don't have to be as expert in all of these topics to, to still do a have a very effective type of a um, workflow or script that goes in. And I think, I mean, you haven't mentioned, I think there's two that I can think of that are missing on our list. It's PyATS mm -hmm. uh, and Paramico. So where would you kind of put those, Hank? Sure. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to put PyATS and I'm going to link it because PyATS and Genie are, are very tightly coupled. And so I'm going to stick it down here under network automation frameworks and abstractions because from a, I think it fits in there pretty well. Um, and then I'm going to put um, Paramico up here, and we'll we'll talk about kind of where they fit in. And so, Paramico um, is in, is a is an underlying Python library that knows how to make um, kind of network connections using things like Telnet and SSH to anything. Paramico is not specifically about network devices. It's just about, I need to open up an SSH connection. I need to send some credentials or a certificate for credentials. Um, I want to then send a command and read the output from, from the line that goes through. So Paramico is this really kind of base functionality for Telnet and SSH. And you can use Paramico to connect to network devices. And 
early on, a lot of us did that. And there may still be some folks out there that are doing that. But what Kirk Byers did is that he, he built NetMiko on top of Paramiko as kind of a simple abstraction layer that said, okay, NetMiko uses Paramiko to connect to devices, but it has it has an understanding about what a network device is. Uh, NetMiko knows what enable mode is or privileged mode is, knows what a config mode is, um, knows ideas around kind of um, uh, credential elevation, um, understands different network vendors, what prompts should look like and, and when things change from a, a greater than symbol to a hash symbol to a config prompt. So NetMiko kind of is built on top of it. And it, you can almost say it's an abstraction, but I, I think it's it's such a, it's such an, a, I don't wanna say low level, but it's just such a basic abstraction layer. It's just adding little bit of value on top of Paramiko. I, I don't recommend, um, I'm gonna put not recommended. Yeah, agreed, no, agreed. I, I don't recommend folks even go and experiment with Paramiko because it's so much extra work. Um, and without any value that I can fundamentally come up with at this point. So so just, and I'm going to say not recommended, just use NetMiko. And just know under the hood, you're if you look, if you install NetMiko, you're, you also get Paramiko. And frankly, if you install Ansible, because again, Ansible is Python, you're going to get Paramiko under the hood. Because both of them are leveraging Paramiko to actually make the, the SSH and the, the connections to the devices that are there. So on the, on the Paramiko side, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, mm -hmm. um, when I first got into this, I looked at Paramiko and it seemed extremely difficult and 100% NetMiko just makes it so much easier. But I mean, Hank, this is the great thing. I mean, this stuff's evolving very quickly and um, getting better and better. So the iterations are improving. So it seems like we had Paramiko, then it went to NetMiko, we got Napalm, and now we've got Nornia, which seems to combine the best of all of that to, to make our lives easier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I just um, wish I'd sat outside. I mean, just so that everyone's aware, when I, when I was setting up on the table outside, I thought, oh, it'd be great. Sit outside, you know, lovely weather. And then it started raining. And obviously now the sun's come out because I'm back inside. But there you go. Such is life. That's the way it goes. I'm still waiting for it to get warm. We've, we've teased a couple of warm days here and then we're back. We drop back below um into the cold weather and I don't want to go outside again. So I'm hoping we, we warm up for real soon. Um, so let's, let's talk about Pi ATS and Gene yeah. and kind of where it fits in. So, so what I've done is I've added, so we started out with CLI based interactions and then network automation frameworks and abstractions. And then I put in network verification as kind of an, another type of thing you might want to try to try to work with as you kind of do your journey. Um, and PyATS and Genie, these are very much, we'll call them operational or testing use cases. Now, you can, and, and at some point we may look at some examples and do some demos and show how you can actually use um, the Genie capabilities with, with PyATS to configure devices and send configuration to devices as well as retrieve configuration from devices. It's, it's possible for that. But it's kind of sweet spot and how it is often and most often used is as a verification tool that goes in. And so we saw in our video last week how we can use the Genie CLI very, very simply um, to do Genie Learn uh, OSPF or Genie Parse Show Interfaces. Um, 
because then you can do that. And, and I don't even label, and you'll notice I didn't put it up here. When I say Genie CLI, you're not working with Python. You're just using Genie. And I think that that's a great entry point, and there's a reason it's up here kind of at that level one. Um, Genie comes back in the network verification here at kind of step three because you can import in the Genie libraries for operational and configuration elements just like you could import in um, the Napalm libraries into your Python scripts or the Nornir libraries as they go in. And so you can use, you can build a Python test case. And, and this is kind of where, when you move um, kind of, as you become more advanced in your Python capabilities, your network automation, and you, and you want to build network test cases to, to do network verification, that's kind of the, the sweet spot that PyATS has is around network testing. Um, and triggering events and checking the pieces that are there. And so we saw, um, for example, last week, we used a command like genie learn OSPF and then some other pieces, but like, and we put in like device um, router one, uh, one. Like that was a command that we put into our, um, we use a genie CLI. Inside of Python, kind of the version for that is you can go through and say, okay, well, I wanna do um, OSPF, uh, we'll say, router one uh, OSPF. So I'm creating a variable called router one OSPF and I can say genie learn OSPF. Um, it's, I'm doing kind of like pseudocode here. It's, it's yeah, learn, no worries. Yep. Uh, I'm gonna do, we'll do it this way, OSPF. And then you give it like the device you wanna do, router one. And so when you run this, the what genie does is the same thing that the genie cli did is it connects to the device it runs all of those operational commands to learn the status about ospf but rather than take that data and just dump it into a text file that you can then kind of look at it saves that output automatically to this new variable in your python script called router one ospf and so now in your test cases you could do things like for um, interfaces, like for every OSPF interface, you could go check how many neighbors are there inside of your Python code. And so the what you're writing in Python becomes more sophisticated. It's not super complex. The test cases aren't really hard, but it, it is a step above just saying, hey, I want to send this configuration block out and then read what comes back from it. Now we're, we're writing uh, validation and test cases. And Python has got capabilities built in it, um, something called unit test, which is what software developers do to make sure that individual units of code are working as expected. And so what we what we use PyATS for is kind of that equivalent of unit testing, but in the network is building network tests. And so some, some common use cases that we would see for um, PyATS in here would be saying, uh, for example, for every um, BGP um, neighbor ensure um, prefixes being learned. Oops, being learned, right? So I could write using PyATS and Genie a test case that says, okay, go learn about BGP. Go check, okay, what neighbors are configured um, in BGP on this device, okay? For every one of those neighbors, have I learned prefixes? And you could even go, have I learned the, the quantity or the types of prefixes I expected? So that's something you could do with PyATS and Genie. Or you could say for every up interface, ensure no 
CRC errors. This is actually a really uh, common one we use in some of our, our um, kind of labs and lessons is say, okay, go, go learn all the interfaces on my device. Okay. Now that I know the interfaces, go check every one of them that is currently up, check the counters, make sure there's no errors. Um, which is something that, that I would say we all would want to know on our network at every point in time. But frankly, most of the time, I only notice a CRC error when some system admin or, or a user mentions that they're having kind of just problems on the network, performance issues or disconnects. I may go in and do a show interface gigabit ethernet 01 and say, oh, look, there's a ton of CRC errors on there. But imagine if you wrote a test for your network that, that checked it like this, and then you ran that every day or every hour even and just look for it and if an error if a crc error comes up send a notification out through some sort of alerting mechanism whatever whatever your team is using and so those are just a couple of examples of the types of um, areas where things like pi the pi ets and the genie tools fit in does that make sense david yeah i'm glad you mentioned that so a few questions for you hank i mean just mm -hmm. thinking about it um with pi AD, pi ats and genie um, like you were saying, check every hour or check every day for something. A question that often comes up is how do I schedule a script to run like on a certain amount, like every hour, every day? And you're laughing because yeah. I'm assuming you've been asked this a million times oh, as well. As, and, and, and so that will be the first thing to ask you. And the second thing, just while I think of it is, you know, the problem perhaps with NetNico and Python initially is a lot of guys want to configure something, which is great mm -hmm. in a lab. But in the real world, you need to be careful because you can automate, how do you say, you can automate them, and I, I won't use the words that I'd like to use here, you can automate the mess ups of your network or the, um, you can very quickly bring down a network by um, automating the wrong script, as has happened to most companies. So I like the idea with Genie and PyATS that you can do verification first. So that doesn't, you know, you don't try and configure something. You, you get your feet wet by just checking things first. Yeah, no. So I'm going I'm to throw another piece in here that, that Pi ATS and Genie are really good for. Is it something we call profile before change, change, profiles, profile after diff. So we, we talked about diffs last week using the Genie yeah. Learn and shows it. So we could do the same thing here. And so if you, you're doing a network change, one of the, the common um, practices or, or, or kind of approaches we want to try to get to is, okay, before the change, what, is, what, is, what does it look like? Um, do the change. After the change, what does it look like? And then compare that. Do a diff. And we probably, most people do that. I know I do that. I've been doing some some kind of old school network configuration this week for some bit, some some parts of my network. And I'm doing a lot of show, um, what was I doing? Show standby brief, because I was doing some um, HSRP configuration. So show standby brief, make a change, and then up arrow a thousand times watching the, the standby or the <laughs> HSRP neighbors go through. Um, that's, that's something we're used to. But in that use case, I ran one HSRP command um, to go through, because it was the one that I knew, and it gave me the info that I thought that I was pretty confident would give me the information I was after. But with a tool like PyATS and Genie, I could learn HSRP before, make my change, and then learn HSRP after, and then look for all of the changes that came up. Because maybe there's something buried in some other HSRP command that doesn't show up in the brief version of it that would be interesting to know as well. And so this type of a, of a, a pattern 
um, is something that will probably start to grow to um, as it goes in. So I think that that's a use case as it goes in. Um, on your question on how to schedule things, um, there are tons of ways to do that. And that's probably the, the biggest reason I laugh when the question comes up is because there's, there's no single way. Some of it depends on what it is you're trying to do. And so I'll, we can give a couple of examples. And these are ones that I use pretty regularly. Let's say I want to um, run a Python script. We'll capitalize Python script every hour. Right? An easy way to do that is use the cron utility uh, on Linux, Unix, or Mac OS. Right? So cron is is been around for decades, and it's a way that's already running on every um, Linux or Unix-based system to process repeated activities that go through. And so I use cron in my environment to do things like some of these verifications. We've got several several scripts that run across DevNet Sandbox to check current status, um, run backups, grab capture information, save it. And cron is a really easy way to do that. If you just know that I need to run a script and I need to run it every so often, cron's a, a, an easy way to do it. Windows has got Windows Scheduler that does things sim similarly. Um, but as I've moved kind of more into network automation places, even, even for folks that their primary desktop operating system, their laptop is running Windows, um, most of the time they find that um, having a, a network automation or a network tooling server someplace in their data center running a VMware, those, can often, those are often Linux-based systems. And so it's easy to say, okay, I'm gonna develop my script on my workstation, and then I'm going to copy that to kind of this network management or network automation tool server, and we'll use cron there. And so you can develop your Python script on Windows and then actually do that repeated execution on some sort of a tool server, which I think is, is probably a practice most people find in the real world. Questions on, I wanted, on that? I wanted to be rude and interrupt you about that because, Hank, we mm -hmm. can, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but sure. would you put Linux at zero foundational stuff? Because... Uh. You know, <laughs> the difficult yeah. questions. Um, you know, for a long time, I've said, you just need to learn Linux. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but I would recommend all network engineers learn some type of Linux because, like, has it changed yet? I think um, Ansible still requires Linux. Um, you know, a lot of these tools just seem to be geared towards Linux or Mac OS, but mainly Linux. So do network people need to learn Linux as like zero before they get into this stuff? I agree, I agree. And it, it's one of those ones. Um, it, for me, I think that it's Linux and I'm actually gonna, gonna combine it. I, there are more than one Linux shell out there, but I, a good one to go through at that fundamental is like bash, Linux yeah. and bash, yeah. right? Become comfortable. The, the joke I say, cause I talk a lot about this at, at events like Cisco Live and I've done videos on it before. Um, we every network engineer needs to learn Linux. The net, networks everywhere run on Linux, and and it has for years. That's not new. Every network switch, firewall, um, device that's out there under the hood, they're running some Linux kernel. What's new is that we now actually are getting access to those that Linux environment in the network devices themselves, um, and you can you can choose to use it or choose to ignore it and just know that it's there. Um, and so the fact that our network is running on Linux, I think we have to become comfortable with it. Um, uh, to your point, all of these tools really are Linux or, or Linux-like operating systems first. And so while many of them do work, can work on Windows, 
um, Linux is kind of the native place and in the place. So I think fundamentals are there. That doesn't mean that that every network administrator and the joke I make is is going to become a big bushy beard wearing Unix sysadmin, because <laughs> um, that's, that's kind awesome. of the yeah. I mean that's the that's the the mental image we all have of those those Unix guys is they're there with their sandals and the big bushy beards, um, and they 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 talk about uh, VI or Emacs all the time. Like that's that's not what the network admin is going to become. We need to be comfortable. Uh, installing and managing basic services on a Linux piece, right? We need to know what yum or apt do to install. Um, the concept of becoming comfortable configuring something by opening up a text configuration file from an Etsy directory. Um, I think we, we need to be comfortable with that. And then even more on that, the network from Linux, right? Understanding how networking on Linux works and, and understanding the commands in Linux and Bash to, to check the status of the network and how to configure a static or a DHCP address on a, a Linux network interface. I think those are things that, yeah, every every network administrator has to become comfortable with because they're going to kind of, again, become a, a key part of what we're doing on that. And I know lots of people have, have opinions on those. I'm pretty strong on that one. Um, some folks I talk to say, okay, yeah, admit that network automation is coming and programmability is coming. But they don't they don't see it as as maybe as as becoming as big a part of the network engineer's role in the future. I think it's going to become a big part of the role. And so having have, being really truly comfortable with Python with Linux, um, I think those are skills that do need to be foundation. Now, just like with Python, you don't have to master Linux before you do any of these other things. But starting to build that foundation skill set early on, I think is is important. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's the way I look at it. It's mm -hmm. you, you can try and hack Windows. You know, you can do. We we've done videos on this. You know, yeah. how you can get a whole bunch of stuff to run on Windows, but at the end of the day, you're still using a bunch of Linux commands, and the stuff's just geared for Linux. So, coming back to the question, before I forget, has Ansible? I don't know if you know. Has is that still only Linux based, or has it moved onto Windows yet? So I, I mean, I haven't looked in, in the last few weeks, but but I, I'm fairly sure it's still, um, if you want to run an Ansible playbook, you need to do it in an, a Linux environment. And I, I think we talked about this in one of our Windows videos last year, is you can do the Windows subsystem on Linux where you run you run like a Linux core with a, um, usually based on Ubuntu or something on your Windows machine. And it's not a VM, it's, it's the Windows subsystem for Linux. And you can run Ansible inside of that. However, performance is really quite low compared to what you get when you run it on an actual Linux environment, even if it's a Linux VM on a Windows machine. Um, so it's possible, certainly not an ideal and not something I would want to do kind of constantly across my, my day. So would you add anything else to that list, Hank? I mean, we've got Python, Linux, Bash Fundamentals. Is there, are there any other like really basic core skills that you think network engineers need to have today? Yeah, there are now kind of they don't necessarily all have to happen kind of before you jump directly into things like the CLI. So from a timing perspective, you can jump a, a around a bit. But I think Git um, is right up there. We need to start becoming comfortable with it and storing our scripts there. Um, and then the other one I often put up here is um, REST APIs. Um, yeah. Uh, what are they? how to use them, how to troubleshoot them. Um, those are also, those are kind of the, the main four foundation skills I always talk about. And, and they're unrelated to networking. They're just become comfortable with them. Go take a Python 
101 class. Though today you can find tons of Python 101 classes focused around network engineer use cases. You've done some, um, and I think those are great. When I started, they didn't really exist like that, so I took and used it off a recommend. Just go take any Python class from someplace, but you can find ones that are focused in on networking today. Um, Linux Bash, go get some of that comfort, Git, and then REST APIs, I think are um, great places to go into. And I mean, your course, your, your free courses on DevNet cover most of this, if not all of this, I think. We do, yeah, so we, we go very heavily. So the, the Network Programmability Basics course, um, I touch quite a bit on Python and REST APIs. And then I'm, I've got in planning right now videos to add to the fundamentals section, um, that first module on both Git and Linux Bash. And it's just a matter of um, digging my green screen back out and getting those videos recorded. So. Yeah, I think that's what's really nice. You know, the the paradigm seems to have changed quite a bit. The the open source slash sharing way of doing things has now come into networking more and more. Whereas, as in the past, it was like you had to pay to to get entry to a lot of you know information. You had to buy books. You had to buy courses. There's a lot of free stuff available nice uh, available now, which is great. So I mean, DevNet has a huge amount of resources, and there's so many resources out there that can help network engineers learn this stuff. So that's something that I've been you know really happy to see. Me too. I, I think the the concept of of information wants to be free, like the, that big idea, is becoming more and more real. Um, there are a ton of really good free resources to get started in in almost anything you want. And I think that that's nice because it enables anybody to kind of look around and see what might be interesting to them. And so if it's network automation, you can find entry spots. If it's it's um, artificial intelligence, there are tons of, of great AI and machine learning, like free pieces. Um, the one thing that I've 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 been a little bit worried about as as some of that has gone through is is some folks have pivoted really hard into the well if it's not f like the only like everything should be free right and i think that's that's the balancing act i'm i love the fact that there's so many free resources out there but i also know that it it takes a lot of time money and energy to create these resources and so i have no problem investing in it once i get over that hump is is this something i'm interested in um finding um kind of a quality resource and investing in it and buying a digital course or, or going back to books. Um, I still, you can't see it in the, the video angle here, but I still have a, a whole bookshelf behind me of, of Cisco press books and network books and O'Reilly books that I've bought over the years to learn pieces. And, and I still go back and, and buy print material sometimes or digital courses or sign up for pieces like that. Because what I think you'll find is that to move from that entry level to proficiency and mastery, you, there's still an investment that you're probably going to have to make. Not everything, I think, needs to be free. And, and back to an, definitely Hank's opinion piece on there. I think that um, expecting introductory stuff um, at low to no cost is, is probably comfortable. And that's kind of the way the world is going. But as you move kind of up the stack from just entry into proficiency and mastery, I think we, we as network engineers need to remember, okay, this is an investment that goes through and, and being okay to kind of take that journey. And, and once I know I want it, um, feel comfortable with, with doing a bit of investment. And I know a lot of organizations, many organizations do help um, their employees with learning. Some don't, which can be a challenge on that. And so you've got to be a little bit um, 
more diligent about where you're spending your own resources on there. But but expecting everything to always be free, I think, is 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 some some kind of a challenge. I'm starting to to become concerned that I'm I'm seeing pop up all over. I don't know what your thoughts. Uh, well, you create content and sell it, so I assume you have some level of thought on that, David. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you said it. I didn't want to say it because the yeah. the, the point the point is is you know if if people don't if people are not prepared to pay me for my courses, I can't create them because at the end of the day, I've got to feed myself and my family. So sure. I've got there's got to be some kind of reward for me financially to create this stuff. But I think you know platforms like Udemy and others have lowered the cost a lot oh, yeah. to make yeah. it like possible for someone like me to still eat but make it possible for people to to buy good value content so the old days of you know paying a huge amount of money and only a few people can can pay for that have changed now where it's kind of been opened up now where anyone in the world can spend ten dollars twenty dollars and get a good course but someone like me gets enough purchases so that i can survive but i agree you know it's an investment and i think Please don't send me hate mail about this, but I think young people today <laughs> don't know how bad the bad old days were where we had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars buying equipment and stuff just to, you know, the us old older guys, if you like, had to spend all this money to, to get entry into the club. Um, the barriers have come down dramatically now, but I think you shouldn't, as you've said there, you know, you can go buy a pizza or buy a beer or buy a course that can help you change your life. Um, you know, decide what's important for you. And I think you must be willing to invest in yourself. Yeah, so agreed. No, I think that's true. And, and your point is valid. I mean, courses today, because of, of self-publishing platforms like Udemy offers, or even self-publishing books, right? It used to yeah, be to, yeah. to get a book out there, you had to propose it, and then you needed to find a publisher. And, and it was a very expensive, and, and very few people had that opportunity. Now, um, it's much easier to get the content out. So the cost to acquire it for the, the, the learners or the, the customers is, is much lower than it used to be. What we spend $10 on Udemy for today, um, not that long ago could have been a $400 course um, or if not more. And so I think even, even when you do do the investment, in many cases, it's not the level of investment it used to be. Um, when I took my, when I was studying for my CCNP, I think I, I paid about $900 for, um, a four or five day class to go through and learn on that. Um, and it was well worth it. And I had no problem paying for it. And in that case, it was out of my own pocket. Um, but that's what was necessary to kind of learn the topics and go through. And, and I'm glad that, that that barrier is coming down and it's becoming easier um, and less less costly, painful to kind of jump into these buckets. I think there's a balance. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to hop on this, but I think like you've said, you know, people who expect everything for free if if you expect that, there's going to be less content because the people who create it have to survive somehow. Sure. Um, but uh, what's really nice is in today's world, there's so many options that allow that. YouTube, Patreon, uh, Udemy, all these places kind of give creators the chance to yeah, at least eat kind of thing. So let's not hop too much on that, Hank. Let's <laughs> no, talk no, about other ways to schedule stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I forgot what we were talking about before. Um so, so scheduling bits. So we talked about cron, and I think if your main use case here is is I've got a, a Python script or a Bash script or something, and I just need to run it regularly, cron's a great way to do it on, on a piece that's there. Um, other options is where we start to get into some of the tooling, the other pieces. So um, 
uh, we'll call them orchestration uh, tools. And so you'll, you'll find orchestration tools that are out there. Um, actually, I'm gonna call them, we'll do orchestration integration. And so this is where things like um, CICD tools, um, I'll put it in parentheses here, come in. So Jenkins, um, Drone, GitLab, examples of tools that fit in there. Um, these are these can be used to run things automatically for you based on some sort of a, a change or an action that's there. You can do them on time as well, but but a lot of these are um, somewhat event driven. Um, so we'll say event driven. So given something happens, um, go run this piece that's out there. So those are those are other options. And then if we we circle back, um, we'll call them uh, central management servers. And so I'm thinking here specifically of, of like uh, Ansible Tower. So Ansible Tower has an ability to go ahead and actually um, do those, uh, schedule those and run them on, on kind of demand rather than having you manually run them as they go through. So a few examples that you can do on, on that scheduling bit that goes in. So Hank, let me ask you some questions. Can you briefly explain what CICD is? Because that's you know, that's kind of where it gets totally out of the realm of, you know, stuff that perhaps is close to networking <laughs> into pure development stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So CICD comes out of the software development area. And so the way that software traditionally was developed and kind of went from a, a software developer in, in an organization, um, writing the code and then somebody being able to install the code the process for that had three main phases to it. Um, the developer wrote their code, so that's kind of, we'll call that phase zero, right? The actual development of the code or a team of developers developed the code. And then they would hand their code off to a team of integration engineers. And the integration engineers were are, are people at an organization in a development house. And their job was to take the, co the code from all of the developers and bring it together, integrate it, so to speak, um, turn it into a, a kind of a single whole product or thing and then run tests against that code to make sure that it met standards, that it did what it was supposed to do. And so there was this integration phase led by integration engineers. Take the code, assemble it, run tests against it. Um, when the integration engineers were done, they would hand that code off to a phase that's called delivery. Um, and this is often done by maybe somebody called a packaging engineer, software packaging engineer. And so they would take the, the final code and they would build, they would build the, the, the artifacts that make up that, that final product. And so if this is a virtual machine style product, they, the packaging engineer might build an OVA. Um, at Cisco, our, a lot of our software turned into bin files. So we would assemble that into the final bin file. Um, wrap it up in documentation, kind of just make it ready for use, and that's kind of the delivery phase. And so the packaging engineers would do their bit. And then it would be handed off to operations teams um, in what we would call a deployment phase. And so the operations team would actually deploy that software that's been delivered and install it and configure it for use. And so we had three phases, integration, delivery, deployment. When the land of kind of DevOps started up and we had, um, this drive in the software world to move faster. Um, what was looked at is those three phases because many, much of the work in those phases was manual. Um, it was slow, right? People had to do this. They had uh, run books that they would follow for each of these phases. 
And so CICD is the idea of let's take those phases, integration, delivery, deployment, and figure out how we can automate it using different tools and scripts. Um, and so the work that typically would take days or weeks by a manual, through a manual process is, can take uh, minutes maybe through automation. And so continuous integration, CI, is taking the code that developers check into source control, like GitHub, and automatically integrating it and then running tests to make sure that it passes. If the continuous integration phase is successful, it then is passed along to the delivery phase where the artifacts are built. Maybe these are Docker images or OVA files, bin files, Java executables, whatever the artifacts are, they're packaged up and then they're, they're placed into what we would call an artifact repository, a holding ground for those, those things that can be installed. And so that's continuous delivery. And then finally, we get continuous deployment is once um, new code has been packaged and delivered, um, we automatically deploy that and make it live as it goes out. And so CICD, sometimes I call it CICD CD for continuous integration, continuous delivery, continuous deployment, is that idea of taking the software delivery pipeline and kind of making it as automated and streamlined and as fast as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very unlikely that a network engineer is going to become a Jenkins expert. So I would say, so as described, the CICD pipeline for software development, so somebody in the software team is going to build what's called the pipeline file that says what it takes to run through there. Um, what I'm seeing and what I'm encouraged about is how we can take that same type of process and idea about the software delivery pipeline and start to apply CICD principles to the network configuration pipeline. And so if we think about the network configuration pipeline today is we, we write some, some, some text files in Notepad++. Uh, we, we maybe test it someplace and then we, we manually copy and paste this into network devices over and over again for their entire network. We run a handful of show commands to make sure everything looks good and, and we go through. Um, I think we can use the same general concepts of, of automated delivery with like CICD for network configuration. And it's, it's one of the things that I talk quite a bit about and and working on how to implement this into real world networking is so that tools like Jenkins or GitLab, which can also do CICD or these other ones, will be something that we use as network engineers, which is why, if I flip back quick here to the, to the tool chest that we were talking about, and I'll go back to the CI drawer, it's why there is a continuous integration drawer in the Net DevOps engineers tool chest. I don't expect network automation or network engineers to be Jenkins administrators where they're gonna install and manage and maintain a Jenkins server or these other ones. But I do think that somebody on the team, probably not everybody, but somebody on the team is gonna understand how to build and manage pipelines in, in these tools, whichever tools selected so to say, okay, when when new network configurations are checked into our source control system, um, we are going to go ahead and use these automated pipeline routines to deploy them to a test environment using something like maybe Python and Nornir, or one of the other tools we've talked about. And then we're going to verify that the network is still healthy in the test environment um, after those changes using maybe something like PyATS and Genie. And then after that's done, we'll promote that network configuration change and make it ready for deployment to um, production or maybe a pre-production environment, but basically move it along the pipeline, getting it closer to a production deployment. 
And that's where I think the CI/CD elements for networking will fit in, is that type of a use case, is, is a changing the way that we deploy network configurations in this, this automated, very routine and spelled out pipeline so that we don't make mis mistakes that we have in the past where we miss a device or when we're copying and pasting, um, we miss a line that we're copying and we end up applying a configuration in the wrong part of a network device. I've done that before, I'm sure we all have. Or we forget a verification step before or after and we miss something that is no longer working as expected. By building that, um, by codifying that pipeline into a, a pipeline that's executed by something like a, a Jenkins or a, um, a GitLab job or some one of these other tools, is we can ensure that type of success. And, and our um, degree of success and percentage of successful network configuration changes should go up. And, and again, that's, that's kind of the way that I look at the future, in, in my opinion, and kind of how we evolve from just basic network automation and, and testing things with NetMiko or Ansible or Nornir and truly moving into real world is starting to apply those CICD principles to network configuration management. It's really interesting. I mean, um, I always enjoy talking to you, Hank, because I, you're ahead of the curve and um, I can see the stuff that you're doing and getting excited about and, and where you see things going, that's going to have to be, you know, applied to people throughout the industry. Um, so guys who are just starting out, I suppose don't need mustn't get scared there's a whole journey and things are changing um very quickly in the industry but you know start with small wins i think you said that as well you know start with you know change something do something and then later on you'll get to know all of these tools but it, it's amazing how the software world i mean guys have said it over and over again you know software is eating the world it's amazing how these software tools are now becoming more and more important um in networking and it's nice to see where you're going i mean when i look at this tool chest i mean we've just spoken about one piece and kind of touched on on this piece with jenkins and the other tools there's so many other pieces to this so hank do you have a presentation where you talk about this tool chest or are you going to create a presentation or something you know because there's a lot here you and i've only touched on a little bit we have so i've got so i go through um fairly quickly, but I go through all the drawers and kind of how they fit in in a presentation I, I do at Cisco Live that is freely available and we can include a link um, to where you folks can watch that and go That'd through. That'd be great, yeah. I'm also working on, as I mentioned, I'm adding content into the network programmability course. And so I'm working on building this type of material that we can get out there. So there'll be, it's, it's there's elements we can touch on um, in different areas. And I'm also working on a um, a blog post series that will actually go in depth through each of these drawers, talk about where they fit in and go in. So I think that this is an area where more content will continue to come out over the next several weeks and months as it goes in. And, and we can continue to revisit if we want to, in a future video, if we want to dive into that concept of network configuration pipelines using a CICD idea, we can go through and do that and kind of pick it apart and kind of see Again, not where people should think they their day one step will be, but where where a destination might get them to kind of as they take their journey in network automation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, if you flip back to the list of tools that we've got, Hank, um, and I mean, this is just one of the drawers, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, obviously, people watching this are at different levels. Some guys are just starting out. Some guys have been doing it for a while. So I'm going to put you in the difficult spot now. <laughs> as always with what you know today let's say i'm just starting out what would you 
do you have kind of like a roadmap, you know, go here, try this, try this, try this, or is it just too complicated? What would you, would you say start with Genie? Because I mean, you've only just recently learned a lot about Genie. Where would you kind of like start to get excited, let's say, and see that, you know, this is the way to do it. And then, you know, next steps, kind of a roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I, if you're just getting started um, and looking for tools to go through, I think as we talked about, um, plan on Python early. The earlier you can get started with some basics of Python will be good. And then if you just want a tool where you can start to see kind of the vision, I think the Genie CLI is a really good initial tool to try because even before you're, you're any comfort level with Python at all, you can start using some of the programmability and see the value of, of using um, using automation tools to gather information and see what's out there. Um, and then I think somewhere in there, as, you, as you're becoming comfortable with Python, experimenting with NetMiko, because I still think understanding some of those fundamentals and how the device connections work and the bits will be valuable um, before you start jumping right into one of the more um, sophisticated abstractions with the libraries that we've talked about. And those would be kind of my, my good entry point examples. And yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. And if I wanted to make a case to uh, very hard questions, Hank. So, it, but this is the kind of things, you know, I think most of us will be thinking about. Okay, so that's great to get started. That's for me. But if I go to my company and say, we should implement network automation, again, would you say, let's start with Genie so we can prove the value of like just verification stuff? Or, you know, what tools would you recommend guys look at using in the real world? I mean, I don't think the change is different at all. Um, if you're trying to do network automation in your enterprise and go through, what I recommend folks are to do is is come up with some 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 use cases where network automate where you think network automation might be able to help you in your day job. And so I, I recommend look at find things you do several times a week um, that go in and tackle those and say, okay, these are things that I spend a lot of time doing. Um, and then use those as frameworks to, to gauge your ex exploration of automation. And so, for example, one I often go to is, is troubleshooting tickets, right? We get a troubleshooting ticket. This network host is having issues. All right, network host having issues. I need to do, what do I need to do? Find it on the network. Um, learn about it. Where is it? Uh, what's the status of its interface? How is it configured? And say, okay, um, I've just been experimenting with Genie CLI or NetMiko. How can I use these tools to help me do that um, basically replicate what I do manually, but use the tooling for them. And I think those are those are ways to bring network automation into your day job um, in a fairly safe fashion because you're you're taking very specific use cases you do anyway, um, and just kind of start peeling them back one step at a time as it goes in. And, and I've found that's been a successful way both to learn it, but also to kind of build confidence and trust across your organization. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I really appreciate you, you know, telling it as it is. I always like to put you on the spot. Oh, always. I think we're probably at the the extent. It's amazing how much uh, how much depth we can go to in these discussions, David. I do appreciate oh, yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, Hank, I really, you know, as always, want to thank you for your time. I mean, I'll keep you going for hours and hours and hours. But uh, really appreciate you once again, you know, sharing this with us and sharing your wisdom and experience. You know, what I love about, you know, these YouTube videos and what we do is, you've got years and years of experience you working with the stuff every day and you can kind of distill that into a short video that helps all of us so thanks so much absolutely always a pleasure david and uh, we'll be back next week to do it again appreciate it cheers hank thanks 
Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.